Well, we have been talking about the last days, and today uh, is the third sermon in that series, a little three-part mini-series, talking about the end of the, t- of the, end of the world, the, the, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. I want you to, to, I wanted to take the time to, to talk about this, because look around at the world you're, you're, you're living in, and we have, <coughs> excuse me, we have riots going on, we have disease, a pandemic underway, we have threats of wars, we have natural disasters, the country is burning out west, there are, um, there are hurricanes uh, down in the Gulf, and somebody, many somebodies, in fact, have said to me, don't you think this has to be the end? And so I wanted to talk about that here together as a family for a few weeks. We talked about that Two weeks ago, uh, I showed you that the scriptures say throughout the Old and the New Testament, all over, many, many, many books say, be ready. They say, this is going to happen. There is going to be an end. And you're supposed to be ready. But nobody will know when. Nobody will know, not even the Son of God knows the time, the day or the hour, right? And what did we see? We did a little thought experiment that first week we started talking about this. We superimposed the first 20 years of the 21st century over top the first 20 years of the 20th century. And we saw that actually things were a lot worse between 1900 and 1920 than they have been between 2000 and 2020. Between 1900 and 1920, right, 15 million people died in World War I. And then another 55 million people died from the Spanish flu. Coronavirus is nasty. Len called it evil, and I would agree. But this is not the worst that the world has ever seen. And the point is, I don't say that to t- say that you're a, a, a weenie if you're suffering or anxious or anything like that. No, this is tough. I get that. I say that though, the reason I point that out and the reason I think that thought experiment is valuable is because um, every age has signs of the end times within it. Because every age of believer is supposed to be ready, is supposed to be watching and waiting and ready for the Lord's return. Then last week, outside, we talked a little bit about heaven. I wanted to teach about heaven because as you start to read some of the apocalyptic literature in Scripture, apocalyptic means the Scripture that, you know, that talks about the end. Um, what happens, especially in the book of Revelation, is that John, the author, is he sees something that happens on earth, but then he's always reoriented to show him the scene in heaven. And why is that? Why is it important that we focus on that? Because heaven is coming to earth. That is the end of the book. Remember that prayer that you pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer all the time? Thy kingdom, what do you say? Thy, keep going. Yeah. Do you know that one day God is going to answer that prayer for good? And you will never pray that prayer again. Yeah, somebody said amen, huh? Yeah, that's great news. 
That prayer is guaranteed to be answered one day. And so that's why I wanted you to focus on heaven. What's it like where God rules and God reigns? What are our resurrected bodies going to be like? What is our work going to be like when we can work without the fear of sin, without jealousy, without greed, without envy, or vanity, when everybody everywhere uses their gifts for the glory of God and, and does cool stuff with the creation that God gives them. That's a, that's a picture of heaven. And that's what's coming here to earth. So even if we could know that we are for sure living in the end times, this must be the end, we should be excited. We should be excited because of what's coming. Today, I want to talk one more time about these end times. And today, the title of the sermon you see on the bulletin is The One We Await. And if you're not quite convinced that you should be excited and not fearful or anxious about the end, I want to make one more plea. Everything okay? One more plea, using this passage from Luke chapter 11, where Jesus reminds us just who it is that is coming to set up his kingdom on earth. Let's go to the text. I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing over the reading of his word, and then we'll go to the text together from Luke chapter 11. I may have said, Brett, did I give you 11 to 13 or 1 to 13? Okay, then I will read it All right, for you here. Father, would you please bless our reading of the word and the hearing of your word, God. Change us, forgive us, remind us how much you love us. Not because we're so lovable, but because you are the great lover. Amen. So this is from Luke chapter 11. I'm in verse 1, if you would like to flip or tap to get there and follow along. Otherwise, you can just listen. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples, talking about John the Baptist. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say. And he's about to give them the Lord's Prayer. This is the abbreviated version, the longer versions found in the Gospel of Matthew. In Luke, only records this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet 
because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. In other words, you're kind of pestering him, right? Now, which of your fathers, if your son, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the reading of God's Word. You have divided your notes page on your bulletin up into really into two halves. These are the two things I really want you to remember as you go away today about the end times. The first thing is very simple, and you've heard it a hundred times before. It is that God is my Father. You can write that down. God is my Father. Jesus begins teaching his friends how to pray by telling them to refer to God the way he, Jesus, God the Son, refers to God as Father. The elders and I in our board meetings, we are reading through a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's an excellent book. He talks at length about God. What does it mean that God is a father? He says, uh, one has to wonder if a barren God, who is not a father, is capable of giving life and so birthing a creation. But one can have no such doubts with the Father. For eternity, he has been fruitful, potent, vitalizing. God is your Father, but he is different than just a creator. You and I create things all the time. We create things, why? So that we can use them. Or so that we can impress people. Or so that we can make money. Or for our amusement. In quoting C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters, Reeves then says this. He says, We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. God doesn't need anything. That's the end of the quote. God doesn't need anything. He creates us, and he loves us out of pure love, pure joy. And see, that's why he's not like human fathers. Some of you have great fathers. Some of you not. Some of you don't even know your fathers. Not so with God the Father. God is the perfect Father. So you can write, that's the first unlike human father's line. You can write that down. Is that God is perfect. That God is perfect. And here's another way that God is unlike human fathers. God has never not been a father. Fatherhood for God is not something that is optional. It's not something that he decided to do one day. It's not something he added on to himself in order to, 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 to feel better about himself or to, or to you know, become self-actualized. 
It's not something he decided to do once, once he got his schooling all finished and got enough money set aside so that he could live comfortably and then decided to settle down and have children and become a father. This is not what God's fatherhood is like. He has never not been a father. It's who he is. When Jesus is about to go to the Father, when he's about to be arrested in John 17, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world. God has always been the Father of the Son. No, the Son was never created. This is what it means that he's the eternal Father and the eternal Son. God has been begetting the Son forever and ever and ever and ever. It's who God is. Being a father is who God is. It's not just something he does. Now, you see why I chose this passage from Luke to read as we think about the last days? If you human parents who are evil, Jesus said it, not me. If you human parents who are evil can give good gifts to your children. You know how to take care of your children. You know how to care for them. You know how to put their needs above your own. You know how to make sure what's best for them is being taken care of. Why are you so worried whether or not your God, the perfect heavenly Father, will care for you? The God who is coming, the God who is coming here in the last days is a Father. He is a Father. The second part of today's message that I wanted to emphasize or to make sure you remember has to do with mm, fear, I suppose, fear of fathers, because there's another way that God is unlike earthly dads. Maybe you can relate to a story or to this generalization. Anybody here, let's see, just, okay, show of hands, who, for in growing up, Who was the main disciplinarian, mom or dad? Mom in your home. Who was the mom and then dad? Who was the main disciplinarian? Okay, we got like 75-25 dad, right? So for many of you, I'm sure, mom could handle you. She could handle you to a point, but then you'd drive her to the end of her rope. You'd You'd push her. You'd push her, and she would get to the point where she's exasperated. And she might say something like this. Wait till your father finds out what you've done. Oh my gosh, that's dreadful words. And now I, I maybe have heard those words and maybe put up a front like, I don't care. <laughs> oh, but inside, I cared. I cared. Dads are supposed to be heroes. Dads, at my house, when I come home, I'm still a superhero. I still get to enjoy, from no matter where they are, at least two of them still come running. <laughs> still come running. I got, my kids are 12, 7, almost 4, and 2. The 4-year-old and the 2-year-old still come running. Daddy, 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 and I get the big bear hug, right? That's what it's supposed to be like when you're reunited with dad. Oh, but if you've been bad, oh, dad's going to get home. And when I was a kid, we didn't have email or cell phones, so oftentimes when dad got home, that would be the first he's heard about it. So he comes home expecting a nice 
reunion, nice quiet evening together, whatever. And then mom tells him, actually, let me tell you what you missed today. And then I would watch from across the house as his countenance fell. And then surely there was going to be a consequence. I would dread my dad finding out what I've done. I think a lot of people think about that when they think about God and the end times and God coming back, setting up his kingdom. As the video we showed uh, demonstrated, God is always punishing evil, right? He's always removing evil. He has to do that in order for earth to be like heaven. He's got to get rid of the evil. Of course, there's evil in here, isn't there? There's selfishness in here. Wait till God finds out what I've done. Is that still going to be a happy homecoming? Uh, news for you. He already knows everything that you did. He died for you anyways. But no, listen, the point that I want you to remember is that God isn't coming to punish you. God isn't coming to punish me. That's what I want you to write down. God isn't coming to punish me. Hard to believe that, maybe. Hard to understand. Especially as you read these apocalyptic passages in Scripture. I picked out just one of them from the book of Revelation, from chapter 16. That John has given this vision, and there's angels in heaven, and these angels have these bowls of wrath. Wrath, W-R-A-T-H. And they pour the bowls of wrath onto the earth. Now, follow me closely here. I'll read first uh, verse 2, 16-2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Another passage, verse 8, another bowl. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent or glorify him. Now, that sounds pretty bad, and there's a lot more than that that I could pick out from the book of Revelation or other books as well. Now, we don't have much time left here uh, in this message, but a couple comments here might help. I'm going to flip your two next two bullet points on your notes page. The book of Revelation is ultimately about what's going to happen in the future, but... Most of the book describes things that have already happened or that are happening right now. I'm going to say that again. The book of Revelation is ultimately about something yet to happen. It's going to happen in the future. But most of the book is about things when John's writing... And when John's seeing visions... Because remember, John has to understand what he's seeing. Most of the book is describing things that have already happened or that are happening when John's writing and have been happening ever since. Does that make sense? Or do you need me to say it again? The blanks in your notes page that I've... I, I, the one sentence in order to describe that that I've come up with is that most wrath in Revelation, most, not all, most wrath in Revelation is 
descriptive, not predictive. Most wrath is descriptive, not predictive. It's describing what already is. See how that changes and makes the end so much better? Such great news. Because when God comes again, he's ending all of those things. The beast is the one who is finally stopped and can do no more harm. The abuser can do no more abuse. The selfish person can hoard no more. Right? He's going to stop all of that stuff, most of which is being described here throughout the book of Revelation. Most of which is being described throughout the book of Revelation is the story of history. Not the story of something that's going to happen someday. It's the story of what's always been happening so that when John gets to the end, you're excited because, hey, it's finally going to stop. It's finally going to stop. And God's wrath, here's the first point on your, under God's not coming to punish me. God's wrath is for his enemies. Friends, if you belong to Jesus, do you know that there's no wrath for you anymore? That's what the cross was all about. That's what the cross was all about. For those who belong to Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you love Jesus, you've asked him to forgive you, you told him you want to be, you want to be his child. He's already taken the wrath of God for you. There's none left to give you. It's exhausted. It's totally spent. All that's left to give you is love, joyful celebration. The wrath is for the enemies of God. Do you see? And the last blank you can fill in there. The purpose of wrath is to bring repentance. Even in that, that, that passage I wrote, it's not the main passage for our scripture today, but the passage I just read from 16, Revelation 16, 9. Even though these bad things are happening, people did not come to God in their pain. They didn't come to God as a result of their suffering or their lostness or the fact that they have made a mess out of their lives. Instead, what do they do? They curse Him, the only one who can do anything about their problems. They curse Him. They refuse to repent or glorify him. People love to predict or imagine or fantasize or fetishize probably what the beast is, the mark of the beast in Revelation. It's not a big deal in Revelation. It doesn't take up a whole lot of space, but people, is it going to be some kind of microchip or a tattoo on your forehead? No. Nobody will get the mark of the beast accidentally. <laughs> okay? It's not going to happen. If it were, you'd already have it. We already have microchips in our pockets, all of us, and they got whatever. It's not. That's, there's another passage in, script, in, in Revelation where the, the, the people of God are sealed with a mark on their foreheads. Right? No, the mark of the beast is a heart that will not turn to God. It's a heart that refuses to say, God, you are God, and I am not. 
That's the mark of the beast. I think it was Lewis. I'm not sure. I think it was Lewis who said, nobody goes to hell against their will. So what is the coming of God, the Father, going to be like for you? Are you like the two-year-old runs across the house, daddy, daddy, and jump into his arms? Or are you like the 14-year-old who is, because all two-year-olds are sweet and innocent and all 14-year-olds are, brr. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. You're probably 15. <laughs> no, if you belong to him, his homecoming is something to be excited about. And if you know people who don't belong to him, you get to invite them. And you get to say, you don't have to be scared about the end. You don't have to be scared about the end times. You don't have to be. Go to God and tell him that you want to love him. Tell him that you want to be forgiven. Tell him that you want to be his son or his daughter, and he'll take care of you. It really is as simple as that. That's why Jesus tells us in Luke 11 when he says, pray to God as your father. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Two quick passages, and then I will move into Holy Communion. So, elders, if you're serving communion this morning, you can go ahead and get ready. The book of Revelation starts with this picture, John writing it. He says from Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's how awestruck he was. Then, now get this image, then he placed his right hand on me. And said, do not be afraid. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And then the book of Revelation ends with this, from 22, verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the new Jerusalem, the holy city from God. 